Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Wait, what's the, I just blanked on what you say. Welcome, Welcome to, to Very Bad, bad Wizards. Wizards. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> How much have you been drinking? <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I think the reason I blanked on it is because it was just so – it's so lame. I was like, that can't be it. <laughs> I, that can't be what we say. We do have a lame opening. But, yeah. uh, uh, on today's episode, we have a guest who is the farthest thing from lame. It is the great Josh Nob. The one and Josh- only. The one and only, the prodigy, the X-Fi prodigy. So actually, I'm sitting in a hotel room with, with Josh, uh, or as I call him, Shua. In, uh, we're at the Society for Philosophy and Psychology conference in Providence, Rhode Island, and we're hunched over a microphone. It's very romantic, actually. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> this is like a wet – you could market this as a webcam, like yeah. a, a gay porn <laughs> webcam. <laughs> I got to just say, like, as we introduce – Josh, this conference is essentially the conference of the, the Nob effect. Not the Nob effect as we will talk about later, but just the effect that that we were talking about how philo- the Conference for Philosophy and Psychology a few years ago was very, very different. But there has been sort of a research. It was all Phil Mind stuff, right? I think so. I don't know. Was it? Yeah. And uh, and now it's so populated by sort of people who are who are experimentalists, both uh, and psychologists who are who are philosophically informed and, and philosophers who do experiments. And I think that uh, without kissing your ass too much, a lot of that has to do with the influence of of Josh's work. So so uh, it's nice to see everybody sort of bow in deference to him as he walks by. <laughs> it's very he's very what, modest. What's your title at Yale, Josh? In our uh, in our extensive preparation, we forgot to to look that up. <laughs> I'm a professor of cognitive science and philosophy. Tenured. <laughs> oh, you got tenure! Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Now the real Josh is going to come out. <laughs> Hopefully, right now. Okay, I can finally rip off my mask. And <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met, uh, I, I well, actually, Josh and I met over email um, because he was doing work on on moral responsibility, and I was so excited to find someone. Um, who is doing kind of a similar work? Because not a lot of people were doing this, right? I mean, no. mm-hmm. and um, and so it turns out that a good friend of mine in graduate school already knew Joshua from from his Stanford days. W- without going into too much detail, let's just say that that Joshua had quite the wild time at Stanford. Yeah, I want to hear about this. So you were <laughs> camping out in the woods. You spent a year camping outside of Stanford. Well, I, I feel bad, like it's so, 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 such a silly thing. But uh, I, I had like I don't know, like a dark night of the soul or whatever. And when I was like, "What am I doing with my life?" 
So I stopped out of Stanford for a term, and then I just like lived in the forest in a tent. <laughs> you dropped, so you were attending Stanford. No, no, I was out. He dropped out. I mean, you were attending, then you dropped out. Yeah, yeah. And then you just slept out in the woods, but you kept going to classes, or you just stayed there and. No, but I, I kept doing research, uh, <laughs> I, but but like by you know like coming down. <laughs> You would come so down from the forest to do research. And was this with Brian Bedell? No, no, but no. Brian Bedell was really awesome. But I was doing research with this with this guy, Bertram Malia, who was a graduate student then. And now he's a professor of psychology. Professor here at Brown. So so actually, although Josh is a philosopher, I, th- I feel like I've always given him uh, a psychology title because his undergraduate work was largely in social psychology, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he, you have a couple of publications with Bertram Malia on attribution and, mm-hmm. and intentionality. So. So he knows what he's doing. Not like these other clowns. I'm <laughs> talking to you, Eddie Namias. <laughs> no. uh, Eddie Namias, who is going to be a guest on this <laughs> podcast in, uh, in a few weeks. Wait, so so take me through a day. You would you would wake up in the forest, and then you would come in to do research. Dude, I will only do this if you tell some funny story <laughs> when you were. When you were in college, I'm sure the two of you weren't just like doing the most normal things every time. I, I wasn't living in the forest. I don't know if I could beat that. Yeah. I, the best I can do is I was arrested twice in the one weekend. But <laughs> really? Wait. Yeah, once in what? Pittsburgh, once in Madison. And I spent the night in jail in Madison. <laughs> That's awesome. For what? Yeah. No, but see, this is what Josh does. <laughs> I literally have written down... Don't fall for the thing. <laughs> and usually what happens is – so if anybody has seen Josh give a talk, someone will raise an objection, some sort of challenge. And while most philosophers get defensive, the good ones will address it and, and, and be nice about it. Josh just effusively praises <laughs> the objection. Where? How did you think of that? Like, are you doing any other work that pursues that line of research and gets the person so disarmed? You know, they're just so happy. They feel so good about themselves that they forget all about you know that objection that they had. And and that's exactly what Josh just did. He just did it to me. I was about to fall for it. I did fall for it. I said, <laughs> "Oh wait, okay." So speaking of objections. Should we yeah. philosophize? Yeah. Right. <laughs> He's getting, getting us back See, on he track. He totally sidestepped. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, think, okay. I feel like he gave us the, the juiciest bits of that story, right? All right, fine. Like he was a wild um, grizzly. Yeah, man. let's talk uh, experimental philosophy because that Josh is the – I don't know. I, I called in, in my book, the Very Bad Wizard book, I called Steve Stitch the godfather of experimental philosophy in some ways. But Josh is really the – He's the child. He's the Michael Corleone. Yeah. Uh, you know, he really took it to a new level. Eddie, no, Eddie's the Fredo. <laughs> Poor Eddie. Poor Eddie, we love you, man. We love you, Eddie. So tell us, first of all, uh, about the, the first experiment that you did, which is the one you got an effect named after you for. What's the genesis of yeah, it? Yeah, and let me add to that. I, I think that there's an obvious social psychology work on, on attribution and intentionality. How did you sort of marry that to the philosoph- philosophical side and sort of start the movement, right? What, what was it? What was the magic sauce that brought you to bring the, those experiments in, into the domain of philosophy? You know, to be honest, it, it wasn't me at all who connected them. It was that 
I, when I was an undergrad, I was doing this work and I just thought, thought it was psychology. And I was publishing it in psychology journals. It just seemed like it was just something that was going to be of interest only to psychologists. And then I had this idea, you know, philosophy is this thing that you, you um, learn German to do and you, you read the works of Nietzsche or Marx or Kierkegaard or something. So I was busily doing that. I thought, that's what I really want to do. But then I have this hobby of doing psychological research, as it were on the side. And then a strange thing happened that after we published all these papers, just thinking they were just psychology, a philosopher whose name was Alfred Mealy decided to write a philosophy paper addressing these ideas from our paper. So he said, you know, these are actually pretty interesting ideas. We can think of these as being relevant to philosophical questions, even though they involve doing experiments. It was this fellow, Alfred Mealy, who was really the person who decided that this kind of work, work just trying to understand how people actually think about these questions right. could be philosophically relevant. And he was the one who sort of brought it into the world of philosophy and said, we should care about this, you know, from a philosophical perspective. Some parts of it are right, a lot of parts of it are wrong, but either way, the parts that are right or wrong are right or wrong philosophically and not just right or wrong, I don't know, as... Um, right. So this is the work you had done with Bertram on unpacking sort of the lay notions of intentionality. Mm -hmm. And so so sort of folk concepts of, of intentionality. So so Al Muley, was he the one to say that philosophy relies so much on intuition that we should be paying attention to what people's intuitions are? Is that Was that his... Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, so Al had this idea, a lot of times when philosophers are concerned about certain kinds of questions, they'll think, you know, what do people ordinarily think about those questions? But... What do people ordinarily think about these questions is a scientific question. And he thought we should address it using proper scientific means. So we turned to the psychological literature to address it. In this case, turning to literature by people who are interested in philosophy, but who hadn't really connected this up with philosophy, seeing it as, as really a contribution in any way to philosophy. So when did you have the idea of... Because this is sort of your idea, right, of philosophers running their own experiments. You know... I don't know what other people would think, but I, I kind of feel like this idea isn't really sort of a, a new idea, but it should be more understood as something kind of retro, like when people now get into swing or something like that. That if you look at these philosophers of the 19th century, people like John Stuart Mill or Friedrich Nietzsche or Ludwig Feuerbach, they were really interested in these kind of empirical questions. And they were just trying to go after philosophical questions using any kind of empirical methods that were available. And sort of when I was reading these kind of figures, I had the sense, well, I don't know, that's just what you do when you're philosophizing. You think about big questions about human nature and so forth. It was only when I went to graduate school that I began to realize that that kind of philosophy, the philosophy that made me want to go into the discipline of philosophy in the first place, had become kind of passé. But Hume, it's not like Hume was handing out surveys asking, you know, about people's intuitions about personal identity, right? He was more along the lines of the empirically informed philosopher. Right, that's exactly right. I mean, of course, the differences are there, but they seem like relatively small differences. If you look at those older people, they were trying to use all the empirical information that was available to them at that time. So... You know, when John Locke was interested in these questions, what he did was he consulted the kind of anthropological information that was available at that time, which consisted of reports from various kinds of travelers. He consulted the historical information that was available at the time, which is just the things that historians had said about other cultures and so forth. And using those kind of materials, he tried to figure out, you know, for example, is morality innate or is it something that's simply learned? What is our ordinary notion of personal identity and so forth? And I think that 
best way of understanding the stuff that we're doing now in the world of experimental philosophy is just kind of returning to that earlier tradition, but with a twist. And the twist is just that now we're still taking advantage of the best empirical methods that are available at the time. It's just that the best methods that are available in 2013 are really different than the ones that were available to human luck. Okay, fair enough. I will say that I don't think people are into swing anymore. That was more like a late <laughs> 90s thing. <laughs> <laughs> Can I resemble the gossip? <laughs> Do people still like the gossip? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you asked the wrong person. I'm, I'm too old. Um, so, I, so, But there is this turn, though, that that because I don't know when it happened that modern analytic philosophy came to rely so much on people's intuitions about these puzzle cases. Actually, you guys might be able to add, well, Tamler can, but maybe John. <laughs> when, when did it become so heavily reliant on the use of these mental puzzle cases or intuition, you know, what Dennett calls these intuition pumps? Well, you know, I feel like the answer is you find that in Plato. So yeah, if you true. look through Plato's yeah. words... You know, in, in the Republic, he asks the question, ultimately, what is justice? And then one of the interlocutors considers the idea of maybe what justice is, is paying your debts. And then he says, oh, but consider this case. Suppose you owed someone some weapons, and then he came to you when he was completely mentally disordered. Then should you give him the weapons? Would that be just? No. But the fact that we see so clearly that that wouldn't be just in that case shows that this general theory of justice is mistaken. Right. So this approach that we see in Plato... I think is a really good approach. And we're just continuing that approach today, albeit with slightly different methods than the ones Plato used. Is it a good approach, though? So yeah. Are you saying the, the, Pla- the Plato approach? Or? The what do we mean by this oh, yeah. approach? Oh, yeah. Because that's, that's the approach be that has given us the endlessly boring knowledge debate. I've already railed against that. Why do we need to know what we mean precisely? Why do we need to have – because experimental philosophers are an an enabler of this kind of (laughs) conceptual analysis. You are. I mean why is it so important to to have a theory of this concept that can be overturned by one outlandish counterexample that, you know, some philosopher thinks up so that they can get tenure at UMass? (laughs) You know – I would say that it isn't terribly important to come up with theories like that, but also that experimental philosophers usually don't come up with theories like that. So if you look at the kind of tradition that I'm invoking, people like, say, John Locke, he was interested in people's intuitions about morality. But the reason he was interested in people's intuitions about morality is not to come up with, say, like a precise list of necessary and sufficient conditions for something to count as honest or something like that. Rather, he was interested in that stuff because he thought it's going to reveal something about human nature. If we study people's intuitions about morality, we're going to learn something fundamental about what human beings are like. We're going to learn, in John Locke's case, the question uh, is going to be, um, do we have an innate basis for our moral intuitions, or are they just purely learned? As a so they weren't doing conceptual analysis on your – they were just doing moral psychology kind of thing. And I feel like – exactly, and I feel like you see that same kind of thing in Spinoza – in, in Nietzsche, in Marx, and in contemporary experimental philosophy. So if you look at what experimental philosophers are doing, you don't find them trying to give lists of conditions such that, uh, you know, these lists of conditions are supposed to somehow capture the nature of a certain concept. You see them asking questions about what human beings are like. Well, you'll see also a lot of girdle cases or something like that, where you're testing a counterexample that is trying to overturn a, a certain kind of theory in that conceptual analysis. 
analysis tradition, right? I mean, like Gettier cases, like like what are people's lay belief about knowledge? Like, yeah. Is it ju- is it ju- we change the justified part? We change the true you know the true part, and and so there is some of that. Although I just want to be on the record saying that I actually really like that. Yeah, <laughs> Tabler, no. Tabler and I completely flip <laughs> in this. I, I love the conceptual analysis stuff. I mean, I, it's a different question as to whether experiments can inform that, and that, and maybe that's actually my my sense of objection. As a, if I had to channel a channel of philosopher, would be that I love the stuff that experimental philosophers do because I see it as straightforward psychology. But for a philosopher who really wants to do that conceptual analysis. If I were a philosopher doing epistemology or like, you know, that kind of thing, I would just say like, what do I care what 70% of the people believe, Mm -hmm. right? And so surely there is a big chunk of experimental philosophy that is invoking that tradition, right? But I I, I guess within the world of experimental philosophy, there are perhaps different strains, but definitely a very large strain is the strain that's doing exactly the thing that David was just mentioning. So there's this sense among many experimental philosophers, like, we just shouldn't worry that much about this distinction between disciplines, this idea that somehow philosophy and psychology are supposed to be really different. We should just stop stressing out about that as much. And instead, we should just go after these questions with whatever we've got. Clearly, people who have PhDs in philosophy have some certain kinds of skills and and background that they can bring to bear on these questions that other people who don't have that background wouldn't be able to. They're going to do experiments to try to discover some important truths. Maybe a really helpful analogy would be the analogy with experimental economics. Suppose someone asked, what's the difference between experimental economics and psychology? There's not going to be some really exciting answer to that that's going to be... They can't lie to the... Yeah. (laughs) I mean, experimental economics is experiments run by people with a background in economics who have that special kind of knowledge that economists typically have and have those specialized kind of interests that that economists more often have. All right. Let's talk about one of the study that sort of launched you. This was your reservoir, dogs. (laughs) (laughs) You became... You became a phenomenon, right? <laughs> Can you describe that study yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick? Sure. So the key question here is a question about human nature. So the question is, how are we going to understand people's ordinary way of making sense of the world? And a really common way at the time that I was doing this kind of study of thinking about that question was that human beings are kind of like scientists. They're trying to develop a kind of scientific picture of the world. And the view that uh, my co-authors and I were trying to advance is that the thing that we're doing ordinarily when we make sense of the world is just really, really different from science. And it's different from science because even those things that seem most disconnected from morality are actually going to be morally infused. So here's the experiment. Participants are randomly assigned to get one of two cases. And the first case goes like this. Imagine that the vice president of a company goes to the chairman of the board and he says, okay, we've got this new policy. It's going to make huge amounts of money for our company, but it's also going to harm the environment. And the chairman of the board says, look, I know it's going to harm the environment, but I don't care at all about that. All I care about is just making as much money as we possibly can. So let's go ahead and implement the policy. So they implement the policy, and sure enough, it ends up harming the environment. And then people were asked a question that might seem at first like just a purely scientific question. And the question is just, did the chairman of the board harm the environment intentionally? And here, people overwhelmingly say yes. And the obvious reason you think that they say yes is just because he totally knew that he was going to harm the environment. And he did exactly what he ended up thinking that he was going to do. Yeah, we, so we thought maybe the reason people say that he harmed the environment intentionally isn't just because of this kind of more scientific stuff, but because you think it's wrong to harm the environment. So we took a case that was exactly the same, except for that we just changed the word harm to help. So now the case becomes, uh, imagine the vice president goes to the chairman of the board, and he says, okay, we've got this new policy. It's going to make huge amounts of money for our company, and it's also going to help the environment. And the chairman of the board says, look... 
I know it's going to help the environment, but I don't care at all about that. All I care about is just making as much money as we possibly can. So they implement the policy, and sure enough, it helps the environment. So did he help the environment intentionally? And there, people overwhelmingly say no. Yeah, this is it. When I look at these numbers that you got the, da- the data, these are like old school social psychology effects. I mean, they're huge, right? <laughs> I, I thought that all... Not like your social psychology <laughs> effects where you have to massage them just to make bare significance. Is I, that what you're saying? I, again, That's the new I, social I, psychology I, again, where you have to just make them up? <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, I'm so tickled when you talk about data, as if you've ever looked at anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, these are huge. So, so it seems like this question, the question as to whether he did it intentionally, which seems on the surface like this purely factual question, something that maybe scientists could answer, is actually being taken as sort of a moral question. And that launched various other studies where we showed that many other things, just like intentionally, end up depending on moral judgments in a way that you might not expect. And that is the Noab effect, right? That is. Josh is too humble to call it the Noab effect. He calls it the side effect effect. But everybody knows it as the Noab effect. (laughs) (laughs) I would have not known what you were talking about. It's the the side effect. effect. Although, you know, people who don't know him call it the Noby effect. (laughs) What do you think this reveals about human nature? Right. So a, a common way of thinking about how people ordinarily try to make sense of their world is that people are trying to develop something almost like a scientific theory about the world, you know, a kind of purely factual understanding that enables them to, you know, predict and explain the things that occur in it. But what we argue is that that sort of seemingly intuitive view is actually mistaken. What people are really doing in a lot of these cases when they say uh, that something was done intentionally or that one thing caused another, or when they engage in many of these other kinds of attributions, is actually engaging in a kind of moral judgment or a judgment that's in some way infused with uh, value-laden considerations so that our ordinary way of making sense of the world is actually really different from the kind of scientific picture. And it's only the advent of science that we see in this formal way only, you know, in the recent centuries that's enabled us to have this other kind of conception of the world. And you think that this is infused in all sorts of different kinds of judgments, mm-hmm. right, that we wouldn't ordinarily associate with, with value. Mm-hmm. Well, take, for example, as just a, a very different kind of case, the question as to whether something is in the so this just seems like a purely scientific question. You might think, if you want to know whether something's in it, what you should do is like ask a biologist or something like that. But even here, we get an impact of morality in exactly the same way as the case I just described. So for example, um, suppose in, an, in another experiment, we gave p- participants this case in which we said, imagine there's this trait, and it's called trait X. So people's genes are such that they're going to develop trait X as long as their parents treat them nicely sometimes. But everyone's parents treat them nicely, at least sometimes. So everyone develops trait X. So now is trait X innate? In that case, most people say yes. But now imagine a very different case. So imagine there's this trait, it's called trait X, and people's genes are such that they'll develop trait X as long as their parents treat them badly sometimes. But everyone's parents treat them badly at least sometimes. So everyone develops trait X. So is trait X innate? There people tend to say no. Hmm. Hmm. So initially, before seeing the study, you might think, well, whether something's innate or not, it just depends on this complex facts about the interaction of genes and environment and producing the trait. But somehow, what seems to be affecting your judgment about whether it's innate is the moral status of the environmental factors that are giving rise to the trait. And you've also shown this in Judgments of Causality. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites, actually one of my favorite papers I did with, with Josh Nob. you should try publishing empirical papers, Tamler. You might have some fun. <laughs> um, I have tried. It didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have too much integrity. Respect <laughs> the data. <laughs> where we where we looked at uh, at this at the Nob effects, um, and you but used it as a measure of moral uh, sort of implicit moral attitudes. So so we actually used people's intentionality judgments as a proxy for for their moral beliefs beliefs that they might not actually state explicitly. So in this case, it was beliefs about homosexuality. And uh, so we have this uh, this nice paper showing that that uh, disgust sensitivity, how easily you're disgusted, predicts uh, predicts your levels of implicit uh, and uh, implicit homophobia. And we use one in one case we use a traditional sort of implicit association test. In another case, we use uh, a modified version of Josh's uh, CEO uh, or chairman of the board scenario. And so so it, at least it got me a publication too. So I'm happy. Wait, can I, 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 so this story that David developed for this test is a really funny one. It's so in one condition, participants are told, imagine there's this guy who works, um, at a record label and, um, his assistant comes to him and says, okay, we've got this new video. This new video is really going to increase sales of this album. But when we looked at the video, we saw the images in it are going to encourage gay men to French kiss on the street. And the guy's just like, look, I don't care whether it encourages gay men to French kiss on the street. All I want to do right. is increase sales of this, this, this album. So let's release the video. So they release the video. And sure enough, it, causes, it encourages gay men to French kiss on the street. And then the other condition is the same, except for it's just, it's just couples regular couples. Right. We, yeah. And then David came up with the idea of just asking people explicitly, you know, is it wrong to, to, for gay men to French kiss on the street? Or is it wrong for couples to French kiss on the street? And the striking result is people actually more say that it's wrong for couples to French kiss on the street right. than that it's wrong for gay men. Because they're so worried about seeming homophobic. Yeah, so I assume it's just their knee-jerk liberal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one version of, of playing on, on this is, is when, I, when we ask – when we talk about the John Height scenario where he describes a, a brother and a sister who who want to have sex with each other. So this is a case – if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure we've talked about it before or you've read about it before. But it, the case developed by John Height, which is essentially, is it wrong for brother and sister to have sex with each other even though it doesn't harm them? There's no risk of pregnancy, all of these things. So you give people this, this case – and uh, most people are like, yeah, it's wrong, even though there's no chance that they're going to get pregnant because they use two forms of birth control, even though they were happy, they never told anyone, and they never did it it's again. It's not against the law. It's not against it's the law. France. All of these. So he takes yeah. care of all these objections. Uh, and when you when you teach this to students, and as he shows in experiments, people still – he calls it moral dumbfounding. People still continue to believe that it's wrong even in the absence of, of the reasons that they claim. So when I, when I give this I, – I started giving this example in a lecture I give for intro social psychology as a, as a guest lecture. And people always give these examples. And so I started saying – when they say, well, no, like they could still get pregnant, right? When they bring that up as an objection, I say, okay, just imagine it was two brothers then. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then all of a sudden you see they're, they really, really want to say that that's wrong. <laughs> like, but, but somehow them being like gay, it being gay sex, like means that it would be wrong of them to say that it's extra wrong. Like, and they just look so confused. These little poor Cornell undergraduates, like they're half. <laughs> My, my politically correct mind is uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like I just gave just them like overloading a, <laughs> right now. I don't know what to do with this. It's like I gave them a girdle sentence. Like their mind is just in a, it's in an infinite loop of like processing. Like. By the way, you two look like you're about to French kiss right now. <laughs> well, if if you want to, don't stop on my account. <laughs> we, are, we wouldn't have done it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Well, let's take a quick break because my family's texting me to try to figure out when they can come home. Uh, and, and when we come back, I want to talk about some objections to experimental philosophy and in, in particular to some of your work. My goal is to get Josh mad. I don't I'll know that it's possible. I, think, I don't think it's possible. I think that Josh is on the spectrum. His emotional spectrum is slightly annoyed to happy. Um, <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Doug Ladd. Two rules, man. Stay away from my fucking Percocets. And do you have any fucking Percocets, man? All right. Okay. Hey, everyone. Tamler here. If you'd like to help support the Very Bad Wizards podcast, well, number one, you could hook us up with some Percocet. That'd be awesome. Short of that, though, we'd really appreciate it if you clicked on the Amazon link on our website before shopping at Amazon. That'll give us just a small cut of whatever you buy at no cost to you at all. Just shop like you normally would, but take that extra one, two seconds max to go to our website and click on Amazon first. We've set up a donate button on our website as well. We're very grateful for any donation, no matter what size. And if you haven't done it yet, don't forget to like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and send us emails and tweets whether you agree with us or disagree. VeryBadWizards at gmail.com, at Tamler for me, and at Peas for Dave on Twitter. Back to the show. Uh, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Josh Nob, and uh, we were plotting uh, uh, about the various criticisms that we could level uh, on on his famous now famous studies. And actually, I, I think I have evidence to speak against the very objection that that I'm, I'm about to raise. But one of the things that you can say about your classic uh, chairman of the board case is when when somebody says, "I don't care if it harms the environment." Um, what they're communicating is some sort of moral trait of indifference or actual desire to harm. Um, and and it seems as if that's saying something very different than when you say when you say I don't care if it helps the environment, it seems like a, a neutral indifference. <clears throat> but when you say that somebody said I don't care about harming the environment, um, it's not communicating neutral indifference to the environment. It's communicating something. Uh, who would say that unless they were a bad guy, right? Uh, but in your work on this stuff, what you show is that um, that the, this difference is moderated by your actual political views, right? Right. So. so, so yeah. So we yeah with Dave Tannenbaum although they're unpublished unfortunately but but they're floating around the internet we did studies where we show that if you believe that the environment that it's wrong to harm the environment then the no effect is very strong for you if you don't if you actually are, don't care about the environment you don't consider it a moral a moral belief to have about the environment you it's not a moral issue then you actually don't show the no effect so it's a very clear difference in the two cases it's a it's a pretty strong effect if i right. recall correctly yeah right, right and then we we also find like for example if you're talking about say a terrorist who believe has you know really opposite moral views from the typical american then the typical american's intuitions about whether that person did something intentionally or unintentionally don't depend on the terrorist's moral views the terrorist views about what's right or wrong they depend on the, the typical American's views about which things really are right or wrong. Right. So, obviously and unsurprisingly, 
if you're trying to decide whether someone did something intentionally, it matters whether that person thinks certain things are morally right. Yeah. But it's not just that. It's, it's that really you're thinking about what really is morally right and what really is morally wrong. Right. Have there been any other attempts to do this? Because I still think that maybe what it's hard to get at, it's hard to, to step outside of your own moral beliefs. Like of all of the beliefs that we hold, it's, it's perhaps hardest to think that when the chairman of the board says, I'm indifferent about the environment and I really believe that the environment is a sacred value. Um, it's hard for me not to think that, that he knows, he knows it's wrong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Or the terrorist knows it's wrong. And that's more of a failure. It's, it's a failure of sort of a theory of mind because of the, the moral nature of the belief. But it's not, but it still might be because of that that I'm interpreting what you're telling me in this sort of Grecian fashion. Right. You know, another way that people have tried to get at this question is by looking at people who are really bad at reasoning in this kind of more pragmatic way. So, just like you said, when people use an ordinary sentence like, I don't care about the environment, instead of thinking that they literally mean that, you use your ability to just engage in ordinary conversation to kind of get a sense of what that person might really mean. Right. But people um, with um, autism spectrum disorder have a really um, impaired ability to do that kind of thing. So when you speak with these kind of people, if you say something, they tend to interpret you as saying just the literal, literal thing. Yeah. So on other kinds of tasks where most people would think that, you know, what they're really trying to get at is something different from what they literally said the people with this disorder tend to instead go with what they literally said. So Tiziana Zala decided to give that the people with that exact disorder these cases about the guy who harms or helps the environment. Mm-hmm. And what she found is that those people show exactly the same effect as neurotypical participants. Oh, wow. So they still say that he harmed intentionally but helped unintentionally. So that seems to suggest even though you have this ability to engage in this kind of pragmatic reasoning, even if someone got rid of that ability, you'd still be showing this effect. Let me ask about the innate uh, study mm-hmm. that you mentioned in the before the first break. So, um, that's one where I can feel some force to that normally bullshit objection. I don't care what people's intuitions are because you know innate is one of those words where you need to just define what it's supposed to mean, mm-hmm. right? Because it can mean a lot of different things. J- Never mind to you know people you hand out uh, flyers to in Washington Square Park. This can, innate means different things to different kinds of biologists, right? the The key thing with a concept like innate is to just define what you mean by it first. You know, asking somebody who barely has any conception of <laughs> heredity whether something is innate why is that interesting or important the reason it's interesting and important is because we wanted to understand what's going on in scientific cognition so how do scientists actually think so we did these studies first on ordinary folks just people hanging out in various parks and so forth and then once we developed these materials we did the same study on scientists so we did we just took biologists linguists psychologists, and we gave them right. these exact same materials. And what we found there was something really interesting. Some participants were assigned to a condition that encouraged them to just think about the matter kind of more intuitively, and others were conditioned to it, in a condition that encouraged them to think about it in a more principled way. And even the scientists, when they were in a condition that encouraged more intuitive thinking, they showed the effect of morality. So they said it's innate in the morally good case and not innate in the morally bad case. But when they were engaged in this kind of more principled thinking, then they didn't show the effect. So what we think is going on in scientific cognition is not that like 
when you get a PhD in biology, you become this really different kind of person who no longer shows these effects. Rather, you still have this little voice in you calling you to show this effect of morality. And each time that you engage in this purely scientific kind of principled reasoning, you have to do it by kind of pushing that little voice down, ignoring it, and forcing yourself to act in this way that doesn't involve moral consideration. Okay, so... But, but again, that doesn't answer the question. I mean, I believe you, and I believe that, like, I, I mean, as I said, I think biologists themselves have different understandings of innate. And so it seems like the paradigmatic kind of concept that it needs to be well-defined first before you start asking whether that term is applicable to uh, a, a certain kind of case. The question is more, what does it matter whether, you know, what people who are just urged to think intuitively about a concept like innate, uh, what does it matter what judgments they have? What does that really... What does that tell us? Maybe, maybe I can actually frame it in a way that I think the tension that Tamler's getting at, because... In one case, with intentionality, I think that the argument that you make is that the very concept of intentionality is a moral one, right? But nobody would argue that the very concept of innateness is a moral one. Mm -hmm. That is, you would say that the scientists are, are making an error in one case and they're being correct in another case. So with innateness, as Tamler says, you can have this sort of – scientists can get together and come up with agreement about what the concept of innateness means – and if they infuse their moral beliefs into innateness, like suppose if you if I believed that being gay was wrong and I was less likely to think of it as innate, then you would simply say you're making an error. But do you have an error theory about – I feel bad at answering this question because you stood out by making all these jokes about how I always say that people's objections are really good ones. But <laughs> this objection just really is a good one. So yeah. Yeah, have I not – Oh, thanks, Doc. I really appreciate that. I was hoping. I thought it was kind of interesting. I love it. Yeah. So, um, I feel like the um, the point that you're making is a really good one. That in the case of the concept of in, of what it is to do something intentionally, you might think when we're talking with ordinary folks, we're getting at you know what that concept really is. In the case of what the concept of something being in need is. If you just ask random people in the park, you, you wouldn't plausibly think that that's telling you the true nature, I don't know, of the concept of being in it. Well, I just don't think there is a true nature of that concept. It's just mm -hmm. an, it's a scientific term mm -hmm. that, we, that, that needs to be clearly defined before you start asking mm -hmm. whether something is, you know, has that property or not. Right. So I agree completely. So if you really wanted to know which things were in it and which things weren't in it, it wouldn't help to do studies, like the one that I just described. Right. However, if instead what you were interested in was this question about the nature of scientific cognition, if what you're wondering is, what is the relationship between the kind of scientific way of understanding the world and people's ordinary way of understanding the world, then it would help to do this. And one view that philosophers have often held about the nature of scientific cognition is something like this, that science is pretty much just continuous with common sense, that what it really is to do science is just to very rigorously, precisely, and systematically do that same kind of thing that we ordinarily do when we're just thinking about stuff. And we disagree with that claim. What we think is that science is, in a really important way, discontinuous with common sense. Our commonsensical way of making sense of the world is really different from the scientific way of making sense of the world. And the reason we think that is, tr is true is that we think people were more or less right about what the scientific way of making sense of the world is, but they were just mistaken about what the commonsensical way of making sense of the world is. So if you ask people, you know, 
how do you ordinarily figure out what something is innate? They would just be wrong about how they ordinarily think figure out whether something is innate. But once you understand how people really do ordinarily do it, then you see that the scientific way of doing it is just radically different from the ordinary way of doing it. It involves just ignoring certain considerations that are totally fundamental to our ordinary way of making sense of the world. So if you're interested in that other philosophical question, not the philosophical question, which things truly are in but the philosophical question, what is the relationship between science and common sense, then you would be, find this result helpful. Right. And it would be, it's in line with, you know, with a lot of sort of folk biology, um, right? Like, so understanding the reasons that it's so hard for people to grasp evolutionary concepts because we're essentialists, naive essentialists. Mm-hmm. But I just take that as, as psychology, which is not a criticism. I, I take it that you, you're just broadening um, sort of what you mean by philosophy to include some of these questions that may have just landed in psychology departments, right? Yeah, I feel like when I consider the question, is our scientific theories helping us to answer the very questions that we face in common sense? That just strikes me as like the kind of paradigm case of a philosophical question. Of course, you can answer that question by gathering psychological data. Right. And maybe it's also a paradigm case of a psychological question. But for all that, that doesn't make it any less philosophical. Right, right. So here's, uh, let me ask this. If, if we're moralists infusing our concepts um, with our notions of good or bad, would you expect that psychopaths who are broken in their, moral, in their morality, who might not even, their morality might never even get off the ground, that they would be infusing, would you expect that they wouldn't make these sorts of errors? I would, and that is true. So if you ask um, ordinary folks, you can uh, assess them on a scale of the degree to which they're psychopaths. So if we just went to the typical philosophy conference, um, there are no people there who are actually going to end up, you know, in a maximum security prison for uh, psychopathy. But, I, I don't know about uh, that, man. I, Steve Stitch is suspicious. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's still... Jesse no- Prince. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got to get Jesse on, right? We mention yeah. Jesse's name so often. We should say that Josh is a big supporter of Colin McGinn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude. If, if, if you ask ordinary people... You can yeah. show that they differ in the degree to which they have this trait, psychopathy. Right. So, for example, you can ask people the question, do you enjoy watching fistfights? Yeah. Some people enjoy it more than others. The people who enjoy it more are great at us being, you know, within the normal range, higher in psychopathy. So now, suppose you've asked people all that question, those questions, then Tony Jack tried asking them philosophical questions about the mind-body problem. So the qu- questions like, for example... Um, if we kept being more and more advanced in our work in computer science, could we eventually build a computer that could truly think? And those are correlated. The higher you are in psychopathy, the more you believe in physicalism about the mind. The more you really? believe there's not like a transcendent huh. soul that goes huh. beyond. It's what about the other effects? Okay. You know, the other effects that you find with we the Nob effect? See, that has already been done. Also. Oh, it has. Yeah. Oh. And then, Damn it. Then so, then, what was the point? The result... This is with um, these people officially can't be called psychopaths because they're too young, so they're often yeah. known as kitties with psychopathic tendencies, <laughs> and they do show the effect. So they still say that um, a person harmed intentionally but helped unintentionally, and what that seems to suggest is that this kind of effect isn't due to anything like a kind of emotional response that you have to these kind of cases, but to the recognition that the one who harms is kind of violating a norm. 
So even if you're a psychopath, I see. but don't you have the brain? Didn't you do it with brain damage victims, the VMPFC patients? Yeah, this isn't me. This is Leanne Young. And yeah. Oh, okay. They did. And did they find that they still make the no? Okay. Yes, yeah, so people who have damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex also show a lack of kind of emotional responses to these cases, and they still show the same intuitions. They say he harmed intentionally, uh-huh. but he didn't help intentionally. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like a cognitive belief of that a norm has been violated mm-hmm. that co- that is responsible for the effect, but, not any kind of emotional reaction. But, yeah, and you, oh, but that's weird because do, do we we don't make do we make these errors with with non moral norms with social no. norms? So you can get Sorry. the same exact effect if you do use norms that aren't moral norms. So suppose you say the CEO is considering a policy that would uh, make the um, movies coming out of his studio be worse movies from an artistic point of view, but would increase profits. Or they'd make them better movies from an artistic point of view, but would increase profits. And he says, I don't care about art- artistic value. I just want to increase profits. Then people so, say he made them... So is that a problem for the moralist story? Right. So what it seems to suggest is that it's really about... Norms, moral norms are norms, so they show this effect. But any norms will also show the same effect. So maybe a good way of thinking about what's going on here is not—it's not that we should think there are these two really distinct things in people's minds, like the moral stuff and the non-moral stuff. And then there's just this really striking fact that the moral stuff affects the non-moral stuff. The right way of thinking about it is the opposite: it's that there doesn't seem to be a really clear distinction between people's minds between the moral stuff and the non-moral stuff. There's just this notion of norms, and we're seeing the same kinds of effects for all different kinds of norms. The moral norms, statistical norms, artistic norms. So it should be the person as normatist. (laughs) It doesn't roll off the tongue. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk a little about the free will studies, because I started out, as you know, as a kind of a fanboy of this literature. (laughs) And then I kind of turned on it a little bit and published a couple of things that are very sympathetic critiques. And talk about the uh, experiment you did with Sean, and then I want to hear you respond to, to my problem with it. All right. So what we were wondering about is this really traditional question in philosophy. If everything is completely determined, can people actually be morally responsible for the things they do? And as you know, you know, for thousands of years, some people have thought, Yes, you can still be morally responsible. It doesn't matter that anything was determined. And some people have thought, no, if everything's determined, you just can't be morally responsible. And now a question arises, you know, why has there been this debate for so long? What is it that's sort of pulling people in these two opposing directions? So there must be something within our our minds that's kind of moving us toward the answer yes and something moving us toward the answer no. And what Sean and I thought was that maybe it has something to do with a difference between concrete and abstract questions. So that maybe the more we think about it concretely, the more we think one thing, and the more abstractly, the more we think another thing. So we told people, imagine this completely deterministic universe, universe A. In this universe, everything that happens is completely caused by the thing that happened before it, which is completely caused by the thing that happened before that, and so forth. And then we just asked on the abstract, you know, can anyone in this universe ever be morally responsible for anything they do? In that case, people overwhelmingly said no. And in the other condition, we asked a really concrete question. So we said, imagine there's one guy in this universe, his name is Bill, and he falls in love with his secretary, so he decides to leave his wife and family. So he sets up an incendiary device in his basement that's going to burn them all to death. Is that one guy, Bill, morally responsible for the things that he does? And in that condition, people said yes. So on one hand, they're saying no one in more Universe A can ever be morally responsible for anything they do. But on the other condition, they're saying, this one guy, Bill, who is in Universe A, can be morally responsible for the things that he does. So we thought, 
maybe it's kind of our capacity to engage in kind of abstract cognition that's leading us toward one answer, and our capacity to engage in more sort of concrete cognition about individual cases that's moving us toward the other one. Okay. My my stupid – is this my haunted uh, haircut? <laughs> the haunted child haircut? It's, it's totally we, pissing We got an email from a viewer who referred to Tamla's haircut as the haircut of a haunted child. Yeah, and, and where, where did he even see my hair? That freaked me out. Well, like there's no pictures of you on the internet? I guess. <laughs> so uh, why is he Google imaging? <laughs> Maybe Ireland. because there's just a picture on your homepage that you link to so prominently. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here. <laughs> so here's my here's my problem with this. So it's the way you guys set it up. You say, and it's true that philosophers have been on both sides of this compatibilism and incompatibilism debate, right? But it's philosophers who have produced arguments to, uh, for one conclusion or a different conclusion. It's not like the ordinary person on the street is torn between this uh, is torn with this question, right? They're torn about questions about when somebody is morally responsible and when they're not, right? So it's the philosophers that are obsessed with this compatibility question. If determinism is true, can we have free will? Can we uh, be morally responsible? And what you guys do that I don't like is you test intuitions about the conclusion of compatibilist arguments and incompatibilist arguments. And you say, based on the data you get from that, in this condition, people are compatibilists. In this condition, people are incompatibilists. But that's not how f philosophical arguments work, right? Philosophical arguments, you give a series of premises that lead to a conclusion. And when you appeal to an intuition, you appeal to an intuition about the premises. You don't appeal to an intuition about the conclusion. So it seems like you guys are testing intuitions about the wrong question. And then based on the data you get, and don't even get me started about the cross-cultural stuff. Maybe I'll talk about that in a second. But I hate to disagree yeah, yeah. with my esteemed free will expert colleague. See, but, I'm getting a man. <laughs> but I, yeah, you know, I actually don't think that that's the right way of describing these arguments, the arguments for incompatibilism. So the arguments for, for the arguments that free will is incompatible with determinism, what they do is they say, um, here's premise one, here's premise two, here's premise three. And then those three premises together logically entail that free will is incompatible with determinism. Right. But there's nothing built into the nature of those first three things that allows them to be have this magical role of being premises and has the last thing has a magical role of being conclu a conclusion. So suppose that prior to you hearing this argument, what you thought is that free will is compatible with determinism. No, but you don't have a prior intuition about that. That's the point. Because it's too complex a question. That's a question. It's like, you know, it, what's your intuition about whether evolution is true? or not, whether we evolved through a process of natural selection. Well, I don't have an intuition about that before I get the evidence that will lead me to make a judgment about the conclusion. Which people don't have intuitions about evolution, whether evolution is true, but they do have intuitions about whether people are responsible in certain cases. So at the very least... In certain cases. Yeah, but what you can say is that these intuitions are consistent. I mean, the same... Look, the problem that you're raising is exactly the same for utilitarianism deontology, right? Nobody is saying, or at least they shouldn't be saying, that people are working through the premises of, of Kantian metaphysics to get to get to deontological principles. All they're saying is that when you when you ask no, no, people, no, they but, have but, but you're missing the point, Dave. The Dave of you're missing the point. 
I feel like you are. That, that, if, if they were testing intuitions about cases, you would be right, uh, and, and I would be wrong, but they're not. It's, it's as if somebody asked people their intuition about whether the categorical imperative is true or not. This is the analogy, right? It's, I'm glad you raised that point, right? This is the analogy. Is the categorical imperative true? And then, you know, let's say people say no. Well, uh, people are intuitively not Kantian. I mean, I, I, we, we do sometimes ask the, the general question. I, I'm not sure what, what, what is so bad about asking sort of the broader question. Like, do you think that all things being equal, it's wrong to treat someone as – Because the, the philosophy of moral responsibility and free will is focused on cases and on narrower principles. OK, wait. So um, let's consider this case again. So imagine someone has three premises – and these three premises logically entail that you can never be morally responsible in a deterministic universe. So thereby, they logically tell that this guy, Bill, I just talked about, is not morally responsible for killing his wife and children. Right. Well, then, equally, it could be said, the first two premises, combined with the view that Bill is morally responsible for killing his wife and children, entail that the third premise is false. So suppose that... I agree with that. So then, suppose that prior to hearing the whole argument... I believed premise one, I believed premise two, I believed premise three, and I believed that Bill was morally responsible for killing his wife and children, then I face a choice. I mean, one choice would be to change my belief that, and switch over to thinking that Bill isn't morally responsible for killing his wife and children, and the other one would be to change my belief and change, switch, say, that I should give up premise three. But there's nothing about the first three things that make them premises and the view about whether Bill is morally responsible that makes it somehow a conclusion. They all stand on the same kind of logical thing. I, I totally agree with that. But Josh, what you ask in the abstract case is, is can somebody be morally responsible in a deterministic universe, right? Wait, so you're I don't just on that to, one condition, not the other condition where we ask about Bill. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. If all you do is ask about Bill in, uh, in a concrete case, then I have less of a problem with that. Wait, but you Is Bill a, morally... But I was thinking like, the question, the idea that you develop here seems like a reasonable one in general, but it seems like the premises of the usual incompatibilist arguments for free will are much more abstract than the than just the idea that incompatible that free will is incompatible or compatible with with um, determinism. For example, one of the usual premises of these arguments is that it is that, for example, if um, you had no say about whether P is true and you had no say about whether P entails Q then you have no say about whether Q is true. Clearly, that's a much more abstract thing than the kind of question that we're asking people about. But, but that's not a good example. You're talking about principle beta, the Van Inwagen thing, right? I mean, how about the four-case argument where you ask, you know, in this case... Check out the big brain on Brad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the first time I hear Tabler appeal to something in the literature. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I get shit about not being philosophical enough from a social psychologist. But no, so take the four-case argument. I mean, what's good about that argument is precisely that he doesn't appeal to some abstract logical principle like principle beta. He's actually appeal. He's just giving a case, right? He gives a case, you know, in this kind of world, if this person was raised on this kind. Now, you can object to those cases as being way too outlandish, like trolley cases, and I'm sympathetic to those kinds of objections. But at least they're asking a very simple, is this, is he blameworthy? Like, you know, that I would compare to, did he intentionally harm the environment? I have no problem with 
probing for intuitions about those kinds of questions. The problem I have is about probing about intuitions about a very complicated question like, is moral responsibility compatible with determinism? Um, can you be morally responsible in a deterministic world? I think that's too complicated a question, and and there's a reason why philosophers never ask for in the uh, intuitions about that question. They never they never use intuitions about that question as evidence for a certain theory because it's too complicated a question. That's exactly the thing you're trying to find out, and so you don't probe for intuitions about it. All right. So so from what you're saying, and and I. I mean, I'm with you on the asking in the abstract case, but uh, but I'm not sure exactly what you think is going on. Is this? Do you think that this is actually explaining the result in some way? That because uh, it's not like people are like, oh, I don't get it. I don't get it. What are you saying? Like, they, and throw the paper back in in Josh's face. They're responding, yeah. and they're responding systematically in a different sure. way. And that's together. an interesting result. And I and I, you know, I I, I hope uh, I know I've been. In doing my best to get Josh mad, but um, you know, I do think it's an interesting result, and I think the result actually says a lot about people's the way people regard moral responsibility and and free will. But what I don't think it says, and you guys say this a lot, is that people are natural compatibilists or people are natural incompatibilists. I think it's an interesting effect that we should explore, but I think it'll be a lot more interesting when you test it about the narrower principles and cases oh we got to stop yeah shit you know maybe we now come full circle because we started out by talking about the philosopher plato and now just like in one of plato's early dialogues when in the heat of the argument we are most confused it looks like we're just gonna break <laughs> <laughs> all right shoot we'll have to have him back on again because i i have more <laughs> He had a whole drawer of questions. <laughs> he was reading books this week. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, 4 case, the 4 case thing. <laughs> Wait, what's this 4 case? Parabomb. Uh, all right, well, thanks a lot for joining us, Josh. That was really Thank fun. you, Josh. I really appreciate it. Okay, bye, David. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Very good man, just a very bad wizard.